Our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 to 33, which can be found on page 981 in the church Bibles. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Well, good morning. Uh, it's uh, great to be with you. Uh, and uh, I love uh, coming uh, to this church. Although I have to say, this morning, it's freezing in here. Is it just me? Or is it you as well? It's a bit cold, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and if it's cold for me, because I have layers of which you know not, um, central heating, so it must be freezing for some of you skinny ones. Um, but um, very soon, you're going to be back uh, in your home, and uh, uh, it's amazing uh, what the Lord's been doing in that. Three and a half million uh, has already been raised for that, and uh, those that have been in, like Rupert, but others, and had to look, they tell me it looks fantastic, and I can't wait uh, to see it um, uh, in, in the autumn, and uh, it's the last push, 300,000 to go, and, and, and you will have a building that's fit for purpose for inviting new people in. Uh, the, the rebuilding works, it's more, it's not for this, it's not for those who are here so much as those who are meant to be part of the family. It's, it's making a space to welcome people in. So just I want to encourage you just to, to, to keep going, to, to cross the line, to finish the job. Um, and I can't wait uh, to see what it's all uh, going to look like. Um, I just want to talk this morning about a subject that, if, if I'm really honest, the Lord keeps on challenging me over, and it won't go away. I've kind of talked about this stuff here before, uh, a couple of years ago, but it, it's something that um, it, it, he, he keeps speaking to me and uh, challenging me. So I thought, why don't I just share it, and then it's not just for me. And uh, I want to begin uh, by reading the first few verses of Jesus' first miracle, when he turned water into wine at a wedding party. And in John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, we read this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. 
When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Do you know, when I first read this scripture, when I was 15, just after I became a Christian, I thought, that's a really good line. I like that. I'm going to use that. I'm going to go for it. So the next time my mum came to me and she said, Michael, I want you to tidy your room. I looked her in the eye and I said, mum, my hour has not yet come. It didn't work for me. Uh, But then... Mary said these words, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And that's the title of this morning's talk, do whatever he tells you. I want to say to you, listen to Mary, listen to Mary when she says, do whatever Jesus tells you. Because the place of obedience is the place of intimacy with the Lord. The place of obedience is the place where we see miracles happen, where we see divine interventions. And I've always thought of obedience as, um, as kind of, uh, well, Lord, I'll obey if it makes sense to me. I'll obey if it doesn't involve too many risks. I'll obey if I understand it. I'll obey if I agree. And the Lord's made it very clear to me that isn't obedience. That's happening to agree with Jesus. Obedience is doing what he says when you don't agree, when it doesn't make sense, when you can't understand why, when it is too risky and it's scary. That's the place of obedience and that's the place where everything changes. Now, for the servants, they they could put this into practice immediately. Mary says to them, do whatever he tells you. And then the very next thing Jesus says to them, You see these six stone water jars, fill them with gallons of water. Now, if if I was one of the servants at that point, I would have probably said something like this. "Uh, Excuse me, Mr. Christ, but didn't you listen to what your mum said to you? Weren't you listening? Your mum, we heard her say that the problem is a lack of wine. There is no water shortage. What we have here is a wine deficit. We have loads of San Pellegrino. Our lack is Chateau Neuf de Pape. So why are you wanting to fill these with water? The issue is wine. Now, if I had said that to Jesus, I expect that he would have said to me, excuse me, Pilavachi, but weren't you listening to what my mum said? She said, do whatever I tell you. Do whatever I tell you. Now the servants did what they were told, even though they couldn't have understood. They didn't know. Now I wonder if they could see out the corner of their eye, Mary looking at them. I don't know. But they filled the jars with water. And then it got harder. Because Jesus said, now I want one of you to take this cup, a cup of the water, to the the master of ceremonies. Can you imagine the guy that was chosen? Oh, no, I'm just a slave. I'm just a slave. We've, there's, there's no employment rights right now. The, I won't say which party's in power. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, it, it's, just, it's just so, it's so difficult. I mean, I'm going to take this dirty water. He's going to drink it thinking it's wine. He's going to spit it out. And then I'm going to get my head kicked in. But he did it anyway. 
because he had ringing in his ears Mary's words, do whatever he tells you. And I suspect that the miracle happened on the way. And the master of ceremonies takes the cup and he says, you've left the best wine till the end. A miracle happened. And I love what it says later on. It says the servants were the ones who knew. The servants knew what had happened. You see, there was an intimacy in that. The only people that knew the miracle were Jesus, his disciples, and the servants. The guests had no idea. There was an intimacy. It, Jesus probably winked at them. Our secret, guys. Our, I'm not saying he did. For those of you that are theologians, okay, I just... Yes, it's called reading into the original Greek text. But I want to turn to another passage, which is the passage we had so well read for us. And I just want to look at, uh, I, we, we could have chosen so many uh, passages uh, to look at on this theme, but I want to look at this one. Jesus has just fed 5,000 men with a little boy's picnic. And then we read in verse 22 of Matthew 14, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. Now, I have read this passage hundreds of times since I became a Christian, hundreds of times. It was only about three year, two, three years ago, I suddenly saw things that I'd never seen before. Isn't, haven't you noticed that with the scripture? You can read the scripture again and again and again, and then you read it one more time, and you think, how did I not see that? Have, have they altered it? How did this get in there? Well, well, here's the first thing that I never noticed for years. It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. He made them get into the boat. He made them. The, the original Greek is really strong. It's not a mild suggestion. Uh, it happens something like this. Uh, excuse me, chaps. Uh, I want you to get into the boat, and I want you to row to the other side of the Sea of Galilee overnight, and I'll meet you in the morning. Oh, how are you going to get over there, boss? Uh, well, I've just got special transport arranged for me, but I'll meet you over the other side. Uh, excuse me, Jesus, but the, the boys and I, we've been on the internet, and the weather forecast is pretty dire overnight, and some of us are fishermen, and we know what this sea of, because this is where we do our job, we know what this Sea of Galilee can be like overnight in a storm. If it's all the same to you, we'll go in the morning. Get in the boat. He made them get in the boat. He made them get in the boat. He deliberately sent them into the storm. Sometimes Jesus deliberately sends us into storms. Why? Why does he do that? Because he knows that it's in the midst of the storms of life that we come to the deepest intimacy with him. We meet him in, in the deepest way, usually in the middle of the storms. And also, also it's usually in the storms that we see the greatest miracles. And I'll tell you why. It's not rocket science. It's because we're in the middle of the storms. We need to lean on him more. And so he sends them into the storm. Sure enough, it's bad weather. The wind and the waves are against them. Just before dawn just before dawn 
in the darkest time of night, Jesus comes to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Do you realize how many times in the Gospels the disciples don't recognize Jesus when he comes to them? It is absolutely astonishing. It's hilarious. I mean, he, he lived with them virtually every day for over three years. And, and after the resurrection, I mean, there's a number of times when they don't recognize him when he comes to them. And in that case, it's because of disappointment, because they didn't understand that he would rise from the dead. And disappointment often stops us from recognizing Jesus when he comes to us. When we're filled with disappointment, we so often don't recognize him. And the second reason we don't recognize him is the reason in this passage, fear. When we're consumed with fear, when Jesus comes to us, we can mistake him for a ghost. So what does Jesus do? He speaks to them. Take courage. It is I don't be afraid. That's why we need to be a people of the book. Because God's word, when, when, when God speaks to us, revelation comes and our eyes are opened and we recognize Jesus. We recognize Jesus when he speaks to us. And yes, he speaks outside of the book. He speaks prophetically. He speaks through, through the teaching gift. He speaks to us through nature. He speaks to us. But ultimately, and uniquely and authoritatively, he speaks to us through his word. We need to be a people of the book if we want to learn to discern Jesus when he comes to us. Now, he says three things. Uh, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, the first and the third lines there, uh, sentences, they're very similar. Take courage. Don't be afraid. They're like, they're like the two slices of bread in the sandwich. <laughs> take courage. Don't be afraid. But the jam in the bread is the phrase in the middle, it is I. And the reason we can take courage and not be afraid is because it's Jesus. Now, I'm not a theologian. I'm just a jumped-up youth worker. Uh, and I've, I've, I've never done a theology degree, and I've never done New Testament Greek. I wouldn't know New Testament Greek if it hit me in the face. But I am Greek. <laughs> and as a Greek, I can tell you that phrase in the middle, it is I, in the original Greek, it is, the phrase is ego ime, ego ime, ego, which is come, our Greek word ego, it's ego. And, and if you translated that word um, accurately, literally, it's something like, it's me, it's me. It's ego me, ime, it's me. Uh, and, and, and that's why they don't translate it like that. Another way you could translate it is, I am, I am. I am, I am. And they can take courage and not be afraid because Jesus says, I am, I am. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. He is God. And so, he says that. Now, I, I need to tell you, I, I think, I think there are, there's a, a few odd similarities between myself and the Apostle Peter. 
I do, I do, I do. Now, I'm not saying for a second that upon me and my confession is the foundation of the church. Not for a second. And I'm not saying either that I'm in any way rocky. The similarity is we both open our mouths before our brains are in gear. I do it and he did it regularly. And this is, I imagine this is one of those occasions. So Jesus says to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then Pete gets really excited. And he says before he can stop himself, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you walking on the lake. And I imagine he suddenly went, oh. <laughs> and before he could say, only joking, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus says to him, Come on then. And I imagine the other disciples, they're all looking at Pete going, off you go, big mouth, off you go. And Pete was committed. Let's just read the next bit. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Uh, do you know, I have read this, like I said, hundreds of times. And for years, for years, I've read this as Peter's great failure. In fact, I've preached it as Jesus' great failure. There was Peter, he got out of the boat and he started looking at Jesus. But then he took his eyes off Jesus and he looked at the waves and the effect of the wind and he got scared and, and, and he started to sink and it was, a, it was, it was his failure. I, I don't think that at all now. Not at all. I think it was the opposite. I think it was Pete's greatest success. I think it was his greatest moment. If you understand how faith actually works. I think, you know how I've read this? I'll be honest with you. I've read it like this for years. I've read it. Peter gets out of the boat, starts walking on the water. Then he sees the waves and the effect of the wind. He gets scared. He starts to sink. He's drowning. He, he shouts out, Lord, save me. Save me. I'm drowning. And Pete's standing there. Jesus is standing there on a wave thinking, oh no, Pete's drowning. What am I going to do? I can't let him drown. I need him for the acts of the apostles. <laughs> so, now those of you who are theologians, you just, this, this is good stuff, this. You don't get this in your lectures. <laughs> if Eugene Peterson can do it, why can't I? And, uh, and then, and then, the way I've read it, Jesus dives into the water, and he does the front crawl towards Pete. He gets to him. He, he gets behind him. He grabs him. He uses a life-saving technique he learned at Nazareth swimming pool. And then he shouts to the disciples in the boat, quick, get the rubber ring, throw the ropes out, help me save Pete's life. He's drowning. And eventually they get him to the side of the boat. The disciples haul Peter on board. Jesus follows him on board, soaking wet. He gets on top of Peter and he does mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. And as Peter comes back, splutters back to life, Jesus says to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, where did I get that from? Where did I... That's not what it says, is it? How have I read it like that all these years? How have I read it like that for so long? 
So many of us have read it like that. What does it actually say? It says Peter begins to sink. And immediately he says, Lord, save me. Now, for many of us, first of all, we'd have tried to save ourselves. We'd have tried to see, is there any passing log I can hold on to? We'd have tried to get our friends in the boat to save us. We'd have tried everything else, and as a last resort, we'd have said, Lord, save me. The first thing Peter does is he says, Lord, save me. What do we read? When he says that, Jesus reaches out his hand and catches him. What happens? Jesus doesn't dive in after Peter. He takes him by the hand and he lifts him up. And this is the miracle. This is the intimacy. Peter gets to walk back to the boat on the water with Jesus. He gets to hold hands with Jesus. They're holding hands as they're walking back to the boat. Now, if, if, if Jesus and Peter are holding hands, walking through the waves to the boat, does it, re- does it really make sense that Jesus would have said, you have little faith, why did you doubt? I don't think he said it like that at all. Now, I can't know for sure because it's a book, not a DVD. But you know what? You know, can I say, can I say, one day we will see the DVD? <laughs> and then I'll be proved right. Um, <laughs> I, I suspect, and I can't prove it, I suspect it was more like this. Oh, P, why did you doubt me? Did you think I was going to let you drown, you twit? You silly sausage, why don't you trust me, P? You are, you faithless one. Hey, well, trust me, mate. I think it was more like that. And, and you know, far, far from a failure, I think Peter probably lived off this story for the rest of his life. I think, I think for years to come at church planting parties or cocktail parties if you're Anglican, you know, someone would have said to Peter, someone would have said, oh, Pete, can you tell us your story about walking on the water with Jesus? And I think Peter would have probably been, oh, no, not that again. Oh, I've told this story so many times. I just, I don't think I've got the energy. Can I say it, can I say it one more time? Oh, oh, I suppose I can do it one more time. Gather around, everyone. Gather around. I'm going to tell you my walking on the water story. Just, just gather around. Well, what can I say? It was, um, I mean, we were in the boat, and it was, it, was, it was a bit windy and wavy, and it was bad. And then Jesus started walking to us on the water. And I said to the boys, I said, oh, look, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. They thought he was a ghost, but I knew straight away, of course. And I said, I said oh, it's Jesus. Come to us. And, and, then, and then when Jesus came, I said, Lord Jesus, if, uh, if you want me to come walking on the water with you, just tell me, and I'll come. And Jesus said, come on then. And then I got out of the boat. The next bit's a little bit hazy, but... but <laughs> But after that, uh, did, I, did, I, did, I, did I say to you, do you know, the two of us, Jesus and I, we were walking on the water. Did I mention that we were holding hands? That we were holding hands as we were walking on the water? Yes, yes, it was amazing. What was it like? Well, it was kind of liquid, but it was spongy. It was, it was, it was like a gentle roller coaster. I mean, I don't know how to describe it, really. It was... Um, I mean, the only two people that experienced it were myself and Jesus, and Jesus has gone back to heaven. So I suppose I'm the only person left on earth to tell you what walking on the water was like. It was, it, 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 it was, 
it was firm, but it was malleable as well. And, and, and did, I, did I mention or did I not that, that, that Jesus and I, we were holding hands as we were walking? We were, we were, we were just walking along through the waves, hand in hand. And to this day, I can't be absolutely certain if he was holding me up or I was holding him up. I mean, it, we, were just, we were just there together. Can I tell you, this is a bit of theologians, this is a bit of theological insight. Do you know how I know he said that? Do you know how I know? Because I would have said it like that if I was him. And so would you. And then I bet he said something like this. Uh, uh, Andrew, James, John, is there anything you want to add to the story? Oh no, sorry, I forgot. You never got out of the boat, did you? I was the only one that walked on the water with Jesus. You see, in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the storm, Peter had the most intimate encounter, experience with the Lord. He held hands with Jesus in the middle of the storm. And in the middle of the storm, a miracle happened. He got to walk on water. Now, I need to say something to you that isn't known. The evangelicals have got wrong. You know, if, to be a true Christian, it's not just giving your life to Jesus. Oh, no. To be a true Christian, you have to have read a particular book. And I'm not talking about the Bible. Oh, no. This book is called The Five Love Languages. Because every true Christian has read the five love languages, I'm told. And, uh, and there's the five love languages, then there's the five love languages they did for married people, and five love languages for engaged people, for single people. They'll pretty soon do the five love languages for left-handed people, blue-eyed people. It's all a scam to make money. But the basic, the basic thing about it is, is that the writer says, and I can't remember who it is, um, it was probably a committee, um, says that um, we all have one of five love languages that we receive and give love and that we understand love. For some of us, our love language is touch. For some of us, our love language is words of affirmation. Uh, for some, it's quality time. Uh, for uh, some of us, it's acts of service. And for some of us, what's the fifth one? There's the fifth one. What? Gifts. Gifts. Money, says Rupert. <laughs> So you better give the 300,000, otherwise <laughs> he won't know he's loved. Anyway, <laughs> it, it, it's gifts. And, 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 and we all have one of these five love languages. Well, when I, when I first read that, I panicked. I panicked because I thought, there's something wrong with me. None of these are mine. I don't have one of these. Was, I need counseling. Because I suddenly realized I have a sixth love language that's not in the book. My love language is food. <laughs> Tell me you love me. It means nothing to me. Stick your love. I don't want it. But buy me a chicken shish kebab. And I'm yours for life. Did you know? Did you know that God has a love language? He does. He does. God's love language is obedience. It is. God's love language is obedience. It's not songs. 
that's obedience. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Jesus said that in John 15. If you love me, you will obey my commands. In another place in John 15, Jesus says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. Do you want to be friends of Jesus? And I believe in worshiping song. I believe in it. I love it. I love worshiping song. But the ultimate expression of worship is obedience. Now, I have a... um, I have a, 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 van, a friend called J. John, who's a, also a Greek. He's an evangelist. And when, when J. John preaches the gospel, lots of people become Christians. And if I'm really honest, it flipping annoys me. And, and it annoys me because a lot more people become Christians when he preaches the gospel than when I do. And, and it's like, why does that happen? I mean, I've heard his talks. They're all right. <laughs> but, but mine are all right as well. And and, and the, if I'm honest, the truth is, you know, we share talks. He writes them. I like to think I improve on them. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and I was thinking, what, what is it? And some people say, oh, he's got, he's, he's got the anointing. And I think there's truth in, in, about anointing. But what does that mean? And I was trying to work out what is it. And I, I worked it out finally. One, one day, it was my day off. And uh, it was in the morning on my day off. I was exhausted. And John phoned me. And he said, I know it's your day off, Mike. I want to take you out to lunch. And I just want to say at this point, for those of you that don't know me, that we've never met, uh, I just want to say to you, um, and I say this with humility, I'm a man of principle. There are principles on which I base my life and on which I live my life. I don't, I'm not, I don't follow the, the wind and I don't follow... I, I base my life, and one of the principles on which I base my life is this. I never, ever, ever say no to lunch when someone wants to buy it for me. And, and so I said, okay. And he picked me up, and we went to this nice restaurant in a place called Old Amersham. And we went in, and I just wanted, you know, I just wanted to have a, a, a relaxed lunch where we, you know, we could do the Christian leader gossip thing, talk about other Christian leaders in love. You know, I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm really concerned about so-and-so. Yes, yeah, so am I. I'm concerned about, let me tell you why I'm concerned. Here's my list. You know, and all of that. <laughs> you know, just a very pleasant couple of hours. And, uh, and, and then we sat down, and the waitress brought over the menu. And J. John says to her, he says, he says, hello, how long have you been working here? And she says, a few months. And he says, what would you like to do with your life? And I'm thinking, oh, come off it, John. I'm starving. I'm exhausted. It's my day off. And then he says, he says to her, would you like to know what I do? And then she looks doubtful. She says, yes, okay. And he says, I'm an evangelist. Can I tell you what an evangelist is? By this stage, I'm wanting to go hide under the table. It's like, oh, please. And I nearly shouted at him, John, shut up. Let her go to hell. I want my lunch. I didn't say that, but I thought it. And you know, by the time we finished lunch, he'd given her a copy of the New Testament and a copy, uh, and a, and a copy of one of his books. He carries them around everywhere. And she promised, she promised she'd read both, and he was going to come back in a, in a month and take her out for coffee, and they would discuss it. And you know what? 
That's why he's an anointed evangelist and I'm not. Because he tells people about Jesus before lunch. He tells people about Jesus on his day off. He's obedient in season and out of season in that area. And what I've noticed is the anointing rides on obedience so often. The, the most anointed people are the ones I've noticed who are usually coincidentally the most obedient. And obedience, it works like I've just said with Pete. It, it's not not having doubts. It's not not sinking. It's, it's saying, I'm going to... It's not a feeling, it's an action, it's a doing word. I'm going to get out of the boat, and I'm going to feel like sinking. You know, like the servant, when, can you imagine what it felt like taking that cup of dirty water to the master of ceremonies? Like Peter, I'm drowning, Lord save me. That's the place of greatest intimacy, because God's power is made perfect in our weakness. In our weakness. We obey in our weakness. And you know, this isn't meant to be a burden, guys. I, I don't want, you know, our faith is a faith that's all about grace. It's not about earning his love. It's not about earning salvation. In case anyone is visiting and has never met me before, I was joking about you can't be a Christian unless you read the five love languages. Just in case there's someone, you know, joke, haha, not funny. But anyway, it was in my head. And, do you know, I'll just say very quickly, um, the Lord's been, keeps challenging me about living this life of practical faith again and again and again. Because our default position is to go back into harbor. Our default position is to get back in the boat. Our default position is safety. Our default position is, is being a place where we're in a place where we're in control. And he's always wanting to keep challenging us again and again and again. What's the next thing? About three years ago, maybe a bit more, I felt the Lord say to me, I want you, and, and this is the way it works for me, one of the ways, because of my job, because this is what I do. It will be different for you. Um, he said, when you're leading ministry times, when you're praying for people, when you're in meetings, I want you, if I tell you something, I want you to trust me and stop putting it through the grid of, does it make sense? Is it too outlandish? Um, you know, and, and stop censoring me, was what he said. And so I made an agreement. I said, I will, Lord. I will. I've told you different stories over the last couple of years. I just want to finish by telling you just maybe two or maybe one. Uh, from last summer at our Soul Survivor Festival, at one of the festivals, uh, we were just um, started a time of praying for people. And uh, um, I just felt the Lord say to me, um, there's someone here called Brian. And Brian has been cynical and he's been laughing at his friends and teasing them and saying all this is rubbish. And uh, Brian has just prayed to me just now. And he hasn't told anyone. And he's just prayed and said, God, if this is real and I've got, and you're really, it's really, you're really here, could you show me? Now, when I say God spoke to me, I'm, you know, it wasn't, it's never like, hear ye, hear ye, God calling Mike, are you receiving me? Tablet of stone on its way down, duck. It's never like that. <laughs> it, it, literally, literally, it's like a butterfly landing. And I need to tell you that because, because God's been speaking to you and you haven't recognized it. 
You know, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, I've just had a thought. That's an interesting thought. Why would I think that? Could that be the Lord or is it indigestion? In my case, sometimes it's indigestion. But the only way I know is by saying it. It's the only way I know. And so, I, I said, um, I think there's someone here. I could be wrong. I think your name's Brian. And you've been cynical for the first two days. And you don't know Jesus. You don't know God. And you've been teasing your friends and saying this is a load of rubbish. But just a moment ago, you prayed to the Lord. He just told me. You prayed to the Lord. And you said, God, if this is real and it's you, could you speak to me? Could you show me? And I said, Brian, could you come forward? And he came forward. And he was in tears. And some folk gathered around him. And he gave his life to Jesus. And they were telling me afterwards that he was going around and he was going up to strangers saying, he knows my name. He knows my name. Now, I'd love to tell you the story by saying, with my spiritual eye, I saw this guy. And God said to me, Brian. And I thought, you have just prayed. Oh, yes. And I said, come forward. You know, what it was was like, really? Really? What if I get it wrong? What if there's no Brian? What if he doesn't come forward? Well, nobody dies. I just look a bit silly. Well, I've spent my life looking silly. I'm used to it. It's like, but what if it's you? If it's you, Lord, someone gets blessed. I'm going to get out the boat. Oh, feels like I'm drowning. Feels like I'm drowning. Wow. Wow. And then I come to the most intimate place. I never think afterwards, gosh, didn't I do well? Because I know what it was like. I know I, I had no idea. Afterwards, it's always worship. Jesus, you're so kind. You're so gracious. You're so compassionate. You're so merciful. You are so beautiful, Lord. You're so beautiful. Just last story, and then we'll stop. Last week, I was in um, Switzerland at a church, and we were just introducing them to this stuff. And, uh, and, and me, I, just, I just felt, I thought the Lord said, there's somebody here, um, your son died 13 years ago, and uh, it obviously it crushed you, it hurt you. But the last few years... It's been better. But just today, you've been grieving today. Today, all the pains suddenly come up. And I said, where are you? And no one came forward. And I thought, oh, well. And I've learned not to push it. So it was like, I got that wrong. Nobody died. And then the Lord kept reminding, it wouldn't go away. And I just felt, I just thought, look. So I, I said, look, I'm so sorry. I probably got it wrong, but it won't leave me. So I've got to say it again. If that's you, that your son died 13 years ago, and today it's been grieving, could you come forward? And then I felt the Lord say to me, the person sitting on that side. So I said, I think you're on this side. This man came forward. He utterly, I'm telling you, he utterly broke down. And he could hardly, and I went over to him, he put his hand, and he fell on me. He fell on me. And we prayed for him. His son died 13 years ago. And he hadn't been to the grave for the last four years. And for some reason, earlier on that day, 
he went to his son's grave for the first time in four years. And the pain all came up. And he was scared to come forward because he didn't want to make an exhibition of himself. But then when it was the second time, it was like he knew. And folk gathered round him and they prayed for him. And do you know the comfort of knowing? He knew that God loved him. He knew that God was with him. And he had brothers and sisters who could love him in prayer. At the end of that, it was like, Jesus, you're amazing. I felt like we were holding hands then. And you were holding me up. I know it was that way. You were holding me up. Now, this is how it works out for me. You're, we're all different. For some of you, you know, it's, it's at university. How does that work out for you at uni? For others of you, it's in your place of work, in your home, with your family. Listen to him and then go for it. If you, you know what? If we, to the best that we can, step out in obedience and we get it wrong, God loves our heart. He loves our heart. It's like a parent with a kid. You know, come on, I know you can learn to ride the bike. Come on. Oh, you fell down. It's okay. It's okay. I'm here. Well done for having a go. Well done. Now, up you get. I believe in you. I'm for you. We have a bias towards those that we love. We do. You know, any parent will tell you they have so much more patience with their own kid than to anyone else's kid. You know, I, I know with, uh, with folk that I've had as interns, when, 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 when you love someone, you, you, you have a bias, you have more patience, you, you, you believe in them more, you give them more, more, more chances. You know, God has a bias of love. His love bias is, is to me. He's massively biased to me in love. He's let me make so many mistakes and kept saying, come on, off you go, you can do it again. And you know what? He's as biased to you. He's as biased to you. Go for it.